0: Hello, Velo News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, coming at you with another Velo News tech podcast. Uh, so, I was at Interbike uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was sharing a room with the legendary Leonard Zinn. And one day he came into the room and he said, You know, I just had this fascinating conversation with Bobby Sweeting from Alto. Uh, Alto makes wheels, if you don't know them. Uh, and Leonard was fascinated with the idea of hookless rims. Now we've heard of hookless rims, but we, you know, we really don't have a great understanding of what they are, why they're beneficial. Are they beneficial? Um, and how are they different from hook, you know, your traditional hooked rims, which have been around forever. And I said to Leonard, you know, it's funny. I've had it on my list forever to do a VeloNews Tech podcast about that very topic. So I decided to get in touch with Bobby Sweeting myself to talk a little bit about, uh, what a hookless rim is, how it's different from a hooked rim, and what the benefits are. And more importantly, why in the world have we not seen this on road bikes sooner? I mean, they've been around on mountain bike rims for, for quite a while. So um, I, among other topics Bobby and I are going to chat about today, we also talked about a, a pretty controversial video that Alto uh, put out several months ago uh, comparing various wheels uh, within the industry – and how they compared to Alto's wheels. And the video was 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 controversial for a lot of reasons, and we'll dive into that. Now, that video doesn't specifically relate to hookless rims, but a- at the end, I think you'll see why it's important to discuss that test in relation to the, the, n- the new development of hookless rims, the new presence of hookless rims in the road world. So without further ado, here is uh, my chat with Bobby Sweeting, the CEO of Alto. And we're going to answer the question, what are Hookless rims.
1: All right, I'm Bobby Sweeting. I'm the CEO at Alto Cycling.
0: Awesome. All right, Bobby, let's start with uh, the easy question. That's really not an easy question at all. What in the the world are hookless
1: rims? Hookless rims. You know the your tire wheels uh, have hookless rims. Your mountain bike wheels most likely have hookless rims. Um, it removes the hooked section, the top little curved section on the rim uh, that on your rim brake wheels, uh, you'll see it holds the tire bead on. And so on specific uh, case scenarios, you can remove that bead and use a different profile to make a rim lighter, make it perform differently, and uh, yeah, remove the hook, hence the term hookless.
0: And so the the main function of a hook is to keep your tire on, on the rim. Is is it safe to say that distilled down to the basics?
1: Sure. It's specific internal widths and specific tire pressures, mm-hmm. uh, for that profile of rim. That is, yeah, absolutely. It's meant to, uh, as, as a safety standard. Mm-hmm.
0: So now when, when we talk about hookless, uh, you know, hooked, hooked beads have been around forever and yeah. you know, they, they were sort of the standard for, for a very long time. Why, why, mm-hmm. what, what was the point?
1: Yeah, why make the change? Um, There's two main benefits. You know, the one that most people notice right away when they pick up the wheel is the weight. You know, we shaved 80 grams out of the rim by removing the hook. Um, Some of that, of course, comes from removing the brake track itself uh, for a disc brake specific rim. Uh, But the first thing they notice is the weight. And it's not necessarily the most beneficial aspect to the design. You get a wider internal width. So maybe if we add a hooked Uh, design on this specific rim it'd probably be around 20 millimeters internal width and because it's hookless it's 21.6 so you get more volume in the tire lower rolling resistance because of that and then the shape of the tire itself is more symmetrical and forms a perfect semicircle so as you're cornering it's resisting those torsional forces much better so you get more stability in the corner and a more responsive feel uh, to the wheel so that that performance aspect of it outside of just the weight loss is, is the big benefit.
0: Okay. Now I'm, I'm uh, pretending here to be Mr. Typical roadie who flies (laughs) flies down mountains at, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh man, a hookless, a hookless rim. Uh, what if I'm, I'm bombing down this descent and this thing just blows off? What, what's keeping the tire on a hookless rim?
1: Sure. There's, there's four different variables that I kind of went in depth with. You know, Leonard Zinn had the same questioning for us, you know, when we were out at Interbike. And he's like, what what design criteria was there to make sure, you know, without a shadow, of a, doubt, a shadow of a doubt, that the tire is going to stay on, any tire? And the height of the sidewall, the depth of the locking channel that kind of drops down into the corner of the rim, uh, the slope of the transition is the tire seats itself into that locking channel and then the depth of the center channel. Those four criteria, it's more of an optimization problem to relate those to each other, to make sure that not just the tire is not going to blow off, you know, that it's at full stretch when it's installed, you know, when it's hooked, when it's locked in, uh, that all of the air or pressure from the tube is running horizontally towards the bead instead of getting underneath it, pushing it upward. And then it's easy to install that you can, fold the tire on with your hand, that it's going to seat itself, that you're not going to have to manually seat it. You know, there are a lot of design criteria, including making sure that the tire is stable on the rim. And those are the four, four main points that you mm-hmm. have to look at.
0: So it's not just a matter of ripping the bead out and calling it good. Uh, oh, no.
1: Gosh, if, if you did that, I mean, the, the hook is there on that rim profile for a good reason. You have to change the entire mm-hmm. internal profile of the rim.
0: Now you talked about four components. I want to break those down. Um, mm-hmm. you said the, the center channel is one, mm-hmm. uh, the, I think you call it the locking channel. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's
1: what we call it. Uh-huh. Uh, internally. I don't I don't know if that's a great marketing term. Sure. but uh, Yeah.
0: Well, we don't, we don't want marketing terms. We're here to cut yeah. through the market. Yep. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> but that's what it is. Yeah. It's a locking channel that acts like a hook. Sure. It's just essentially on the other end of the, uh, of the uh, the wall uh, the, the sidewall
0: so explain i'm not quite clear on on where that is so if i'm looking at mm-hmm. the rim in cross section sure um you've got the channel which is in the middle the center of the rim mm-hmm. um, and then the, are these locking channels sort of at the bottom of the sidewall on the inside of the rim is that where they are it's
1: it's where the bead of the tire sits when it goes up that little ramp and then it drops back down so there's a little peak uh-huh. And then a valley as it kind of butts up against the side of the rim. Oh, I see. I see. And it's that little valley, the shape of it and the depth of it diametrically that, that is one of the big features to making sure that your tire is going to stay on the yeah. rim uh, at, in our in our case, at high pressures. Uh-huh.
0: So in a sense, hookless is, is sort of a misnomer. I mean, there is something hooking the, yes, the rim. Yes, absolutely. The,
1: okay. It's that little mound yeah. as the tire seats itself. So you still get the shape of the tire you want, the mm-hmm. internal width that you want by removing the, the hook, you know, the old school hook. And you kind of flip that upside down yeah. and you have a locking channel in the corner yeah. to secure the beat of the tire. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to share something about me, uh, Bobby, uh, awesome.
1: I, I am lazy.
0: Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, it's
1: always best to, you know, you, you want to <laughs> Take the least the path of least resistance. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in
0: most things in life, well, Some philosopher said, no, "Know thyself." <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, I'm a, actually the real the real issue here is that I'm on a lot of different bikes testing, and mm-hmm. I can certainly be accused of leaving the garage without checking my tire pressure. Sure. Um, so, what happens if uh, if you know you're you're low on tire pressure and there's not sufficient pressure to keep the, the tire in place on this hookless system?
1: It depends on the tire and the um, and the size of the tire mostly because you can run our CCX line for example all the way from a 25 millimeter tire up to a 2.1 inch mountain bike tire. So if the tire is up in that 47 50 millimeter range, you know you're going all the way down to 35 30 psi before it's going to start to burp. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same issue with a hook rim or a hookless rim because it's a similar locking mechanism. By the time you get down, let's say for a road tire to like 50 psi, you know, 60 psi somewhere in there, you'll start to feel it uh, buck out of the hook, or in our case, the locking channel, and um, yeah, you would you would certainly feel it. It's very unlikely that you the tire would come off before you notice you had a flat tire. Sure. Let's put it that way. Okay. So you would be uh, bucking up and down along the road and and feel that your tire was flat before it got to the point where it was an issue. Right. Uh, with our rim brake, hooked rims or or our hookless rims.
0: And so I would I I'm not running more of a risk of burping a tire on a hookless rim than I am on a, on a hooked rim.
1: Oh no. No, no, no. It's um the psi where that's going to where the tire is going to start to unseat itself is the same for our hooked rims and our hookless rims. Mm-hmm. Um where it starts to come out of that that channel.
0: So there's got to be some drawbacks to this system. I mean, if, if everybody's not doing it, there's got to be something mm-hmm. that's preventing people from, from going to hookless. What's What are the drawbacks of this system?
1: Well, when Rimbrake was the, a thing, you know, the first kind of design process that we have in-house, you know, our engineers sit around uh, in our conference room here, and we go, I, I wonder why people haven't done X. And I wonder why people haven't done Y. And a lot of times in the industry, it's an assumption. Like, well, you know, We assume that somebody's tried it and they probably tried it and it probably didn't work. So let's just move on. And we've really tried hard, even the easiest, simplest questions Mm -hmm. to not have that frame of mind. And if we don't know the answer, instead of assuming that someone has tried and failed, we're like, let's just do it because that might not be the case. Mm -hmm. And we can see if we can accomplish something cool. And so we even made a, a rim break hookless rim and You know, everybody's seen our rim brake testing and our heat transfer capabilities, and they're second to none. But even as good as our our resin capabilities are, uh, the rim still gets these little micro warps in them that causes the tire to come off uh, after about five to six minutes on that test, which is not sellable, obviously. So, um, So, you know, we tried that. It didn't work for disc brake. Obviously, it works great because heat transfer is not an issue. Um, but that's, you know, that's one reason why I think a lot of people haven't ventured into hookless rims, A, because rim brake was the main thing. You know, you saw it in mountain bike because mountain bike's been disc brake for a while. You didn't see it on the road because disc brake road hasn't been around for that long. Mm -hmm. And we are simply the first ones to do it. And I think it will kind of follow that trend. Like mountain bike did, where more rims are becoming hookless now that heat transfer is not as much of an issue. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I, I think the companies just kind of rest on their laurels is not the right term, but make assumptions that other engineers have studied it and that it's not worth their worth their while. Sure. Um, you know, which is you know an important thing for us to to kind of go against. Mm-hmm.
0: There was boy, there was a lot to unpack there. Um, I want to yeah. <laughs> back up for a second.: Sure. Um, first and foremost, so basically for our listeners, uh, it's important to note that uh, when we're talking about hookless rims, you really you're not going to find hookless rims for rim breaks. Um, we tried it, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, we attempted it. and that's the other thing I wanted to mention was your your test, uh, the video test that you guys did uh, that caused a, a little bit of a controversy, but but before we, a little bit a little just a bit, little bit just slightly slightly <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think there was there was much to talk about there that uh, that could could lead us both down to some lawsuits, uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> um. No, but uh, before we get into that, uh, so the reason, uh, just to clarify, that you won't find rim brake uh, hookless rims is because of heat. Now, I-, I think specifically we need to address this because what happens when you apply your rim brakes is really the same thing that happens when you apply uh, your you know your disc brakes. There's heat buildup between the two interfaces. The difference is the heat, the the interface on a disc brake has nothing to do with the rim itself. Um, whereas on a rim brake, those rim brake pads are pressing right onto the rim and
1: they're creating heat
0: because of the friction. Bobby, what happens to the rim when they heat up?
1: Yeah. Like you said, the rotor is heating up, but the rotor is made of metal. There's all sorts of heat sinks and ways to dissipate that heat. Um, similar with rim brake aluminum uh, rims, you know, you're having just quicker heat dissipation, and the metal is not reaching a temperature where it's starting to liquefy, essentially. Carbon fiber is, without getting too in the weeds with it, it's a matrix, and the fibers are held together by resin, which is typically a type of thermoplastic. And so like any other plastic, it can heat and cool and heat and cool, and and as it hits a specific temperature, it starts to soften. And so there's kind of, you know, you want to look at not only the glass temperature of the resin, you know, the point where it starts to soften, but also different additives you can use to help dissipate the heat faster. And so that's what, what we did and we what we displayed in the, the testing video uh, regarding how quickly it can dissipate the heat. But even still, the resin still hits 270, 280 degrees Fahrenheit after five, six minutes of breaking. And it's about 30 to 40% less than the glass temperature, but you're still getting some softening. And those little tiny... Bits of softening where the rim is starting to warp is enough if it's hookless to affect the tire retention, Mm -hmm. and so that's that's the main issue with rim brake hookless designs. That I'm I'm almost positive it'll Mm -hmm. you know you'll probably never see it, um, because something like that come to market for that reason.
0: Now, uh, one of the things you just mentioned was the glass transition temperature. And, it, and for those mm-hmm. of you listening, if you're not sure what that is, uh, I actually did a whole podcast on that. Uh, so you can find that under what is TG because that's the scientific notation for it. Um, Perfect. So we won't dive too deep into that. But um, basically what, what Bobby's talking about here is, you know, the resin heats up and when it heats up, it starts to soften and can eventually uh, turn to, you know, glass or liquid. It, it, mm-hmm. um, I didn't explain that very well. So feel free to ignore me. Go listen to the other podcast. I was, <laughs> I was smart back then uh, when, when I knew what I was talking Previous about. Previous life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was way back, you know, a week ago. Um, so in any event, uh, the room can heat up, it can deform, and that can affect the retention of your tire. Uh, and that is why you don't see these hookless rims on, on rim brakes. And that's why you've seen it for so long on, on the mountain bike side where disc brakes have been adopted for a long time. Now, um, this is my favorite part of the show where I get to piss off all of my curmudgeonly uh, Facebook commenters <laughs> uh, where I can definitively say that this is a serious benefit of disc brakes, uh, <laughs> and not just the industry trying to force something down your throats. Uh, you are actually removing a safety issue uh, from your rim. You know, with rim brakes, one of the things that that has happened with the advent of carbon is, you know, you you heat up that rim, it can delaminate, and that's that's that can lead to a crash. Um, so my my curmudgeons, who I am usually one of, uh, let's be honest, um, <laughs> you know, they they swear by aluminum rims, and that's fine. Um, that is absolutely a solution to the problem. But for those of us who want carbon, for you know the various benefits of carbon wheels, disc uh, brakes really make sense in this case.
1: Um, my and, question... I, and I will say, Dan, since I am a curmudgeon yes. and I love my rim brake bikes, yeah, th- that's the reason why we did that resin project in the first place. What's we that? had to make sure that we offered a really innovative disc brake rim right. as well. Right. But um, I love my carbon clinchers, man. I just wanted to develop something that couldn't delaminate. Right. You know, that was the only reason why we attempted it in the first place. Because yeah. I am as curmudgeon as as it gets. Right. So.
0: I'm, cur- I'm curmudgeonly <laughs> right up to the point where I delaminate a rim and I have that butt-puckering experience coming down a hill. Then all of a sudden, I'm like Mr. Technology, you
1: know? <laughs> well, that's, that's why you got to get yourself a pair of reliable carbon cleansers. Right, right.
0: So here, that begs the question, um, are there hookless aluminum rims?
1: I believe so. We, we don't do it currently, um, but off the top of my head, I think that it's, it's the stand's. Doing a, a hookless
0: aluminum rim? I think you might be on a, something there. I would have to double check, but um, I don't know off the top of my head. Is there a but reason? Yes. Is there a reason not to do it?
1: No, mm-hmm. not at all. We mm-hmm. simply have the mandrel shape right. with a very, very small hook. Um, right. You know, already done. So it's um, yeah. There's no reason not to, right. but just right. not something that we've looked at yet.
0: Mudgeons unite. This could be your gateway drug into technology. You could get your aluminum <laughs> hookless.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no re- there's no difference between the alloy and the carbon in terms mm-hmm. of hookless benefits or tire attention or mm-hmm. or any of that. So, yeah, no, there's there's no reason not to.
0: So let's let's go back to uh, the world of carbon and talk a little bit about the manufacturing of these rims. Now, we talk about you know hooked rims versus hookless, and we we say, oh, we're removing the hook. But is that really accurate? I mean, how, how is a hooked rim made? I mean, are you really removing a hook or are you just not adding a hook?
1: You're just not adding a hook. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like we, we make the same rim or the same brake track and sand down the hook. Right. You know, that would be insane. (laughs) Uh, Mostly because the entire profile has to be different in order to retain the tire properly. So no, you're, you're just creating a mold uh, without the hook Mm -hmm. in it. So that's, that's the main difference.
0: Sure. And I think it's, I think it's worth noting here. And the reason to bring it up is because when you build a hooked rim, excuse me, when you build a hooked rim, uh, there's a few ways to do it Mm -hmm. and none of them are particularly ideal. Uh, you can, you can, you know, use a mold and then you'd have to kind of like remove material to to make the hook shape. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, when you start removing carbon, you're actually weakening it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's one way to do it, and then the other way is you know you you add essentially uh, a hook, you know, after the fact, mm-hmm. and that's not great because now you have this entire bonding process, and that can be a point mm-hmm. of weakness. So, actually, you, I mean, is it accurate to say that in that sense uh, is a hookless frame actually more reliable and strong?
1: It's a simpler shape. That's for sure. And so our process is the same. Both are filament wound by machine and molded in place. Um, So there's no post-machining op, which makes it a much stronger system. That being said, any internal corner on anything, a hub or a free hub or or your desk, it's a stress riser. And so any crack that develops is going to propagate out from that internal corner. And so Post-machining a hook or molding a hook, however you want to do it, you're adding potential failure modes and potential areas where, if the carbon's not compacted properly, uh, could begin to propagate. So that's that's one of the main—I don't want to say the main benefit, but that is a benefit of a hookless rim in general, is that the shape is just so much simpler, there are less areas for it to fail. Absolutely.
0: Right. And, and that's pretty much a rule of thumb in, in any kind of carbon manufacturing, is that— sharp angles are generally considered bad
1: yes internal ones especially yeah, right right
0: uh and that's and, and that's just a nature of the nature of how carbon works i mean it's not like it's specific to rims it's not specific to uh engineering principles it's just that's specific to carbon
1: yeah um, so the mold release is challenging if you're trying to hit a 90 degree corner
0: <laughs> now let's let's talk specifically a little bit about alto um Tell me about the company. Tell me about uh, how it came about. And and was mm-hmm. it uh, specifically, I mean, you guys existed before Hookless, yes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We did a hooked disc brake rim initially. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a development that we launched about, I guess it was like 14 months ago now, uh, just before Interbike of last year. Mm-hmm.
0: That's right. I remember talking to you about it uh, back yeah. then. Yeah. And then I immediately forgot about it. Because, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, trade shows, they're, they're a great place to remember absolutely. and information. Absolutely. That's right. right. So Alto has been around for a bit now. Um, How many years, how many years you guys been operating?
1: We're going into our fourth year and you know, the real nutshell story of it is that Sean and I raced professionally, you know, for the last 10 years while we went to school at Florida for engineering. And, you know, we would get back and get back from training rides and and look at our bikes and be like, man, I wish that the handlebars didn't do this to cause it to slip. And the seat post was designed so we can actually adjust it. And, all these issues that we had that we felt could be done better. Um, I went and worked at Cannondale as a frame designer for a few years and got a ton of experience. It was wonderful there. They were really accommodating with my racing schedule and and loved it. I eventually left Cannondale to race full-time to move to Asheville. and And, you know, like any full-time bike racer, you have way too much time on your hands to do all sorts of nonsense. And for me, it was talking to Sean about, making something, you know, one of those designs that we felt would, would translate to the market and to make people's riding experience better. Um, and to do it properly, you know, to find an investor to allow us to manufacture in the U S you know, the other great thing about bike racers is we're super poor. So, (laughs) so I was like, Sean, if we can't find an investor, we're definitely not doing this. Um, (laughs) and so there are three partners, you know, the third being our investor and, um, you know, being able to, to do it in Sarasota, hold the manufacturing as close to the chest as possible, protect our patents, you know, that goes a really long way in terms of just our production line, our quality control. And, and the products that we produce, you know, a lot of people want us to do a frame since that's my background. We've got bottom bracket and seat post designs that we've looked at, but we'll never make a product that doesn't solve a specific problem. You know, Alto exists because... As racers, we had so many structural issues with the wheel sets that we had as sponsors, with the lateral deflection, brake rub, bearing wear, broken spokes. Um we felt like the industry was ignoring the, the the real issues that were outside of the wind tunnel. And uh we felt there was a lot of efficiency and wattage to be gained just from the efficiency and the structural integrity of the wheel. And so all the designs that go into the brand are about solving those specific problems. And it's why we exist in a crowded market. Otherwise we would have never done it. Right. So if we do another product, if, if we do anything, it's going to be a patentable design that exists for a reason. We'll never just make a handlebar just to be in the handlebar business. Right. You know, it'll, it'll be a an issue that we've had personally. And um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, which is why we haven't branched out from real right. wheels yet. Sure but but maybe something in the future uh-huh.
0: are you, are your wheels made in the u.s or do you guys uh, outsource those to uh-
1: yes all the metalworking we do right here in sarasota so all the internals the hubs the axles uh the rim molds and the resin it's all done in sarasota and then the rim molds themselves and the resin are shipped to taki which is in taiwan that's where we're filament winding them mm-hmm. and then being shipped back to us to be built okay um we tried to hand lay we were using a hand layup process originally tried to do it in west palm beach and it's a very inconsistent process using pre-preg plies and there's only three or four facilities that i know of that can do filament winding and so that was what kind of spurred us on to to head to toffee and, and work with those guys and i had experience with their team from my time at Mill, so that was super helpful
0: can you tell me what what the difference between filament winding is uh, from other construction Mm -hmm. processes?
1: Yeah, so the prepreg layup, you essentially have your female mold, steel, should be a steel mold. Sometimes it's aluminum if it's a little bit cheaper, Um, but should be a steel mold. You lay up, you cut the plies in the specific shapes and the orientations according to the layup schedule. You lay them into the mold. You put your typically a latex bladder accordion folded in it. You lay the other half of the mold down and you have ports in the uh, in the mold to inflate the bags to create the internal pressure on the rim during curing. Um, if the bags don't inflate properly or the worker manipulates the layup schedule by wrinkling the ply or what have you, you end up getting a lot of structural issues, a lot of air gaps and defects inside the laminate that you can never see unless you do a scan of the rim, you'll never see it until it fails in the field and is warrantied. And we had a handful of warranties uh, through our first two years as we were doing that process. And it's just it's just too inconsistent for us. And so we wanted to develop a way, and we didn't develop filament lining, of course, but we wanted to develop a resin and a process that would make every single rim extremely consistent. So now we have an EPS core, it's an expanded polystyrene core, that's clamped into a rotating jig, and there are two robotic arms that dip the resin, dip the fibers into the resin and wrap around the rotating EPS core before the mold is closed and it goes into curing. So you get perfect compaction internally from the EPS, and you get extremely tight fiber winding around the EPS by the robotic arms, and it's all done by machine. So A human doesn't touch it and there's no, it doesn't touch it until clear coating basically. Mm -hmm. And there's no risk of human error, Mm uh, which is why it's, it's an expensive process to get started, but once it's running, um, gosh, we haven't had a warranty in a little over a year, uh, 13, 14 months since we started this process. So knock on wood, you know, it's been very consistent. Yeah.
0: So for those of you listening, EPS, uh, expanded polystyrene, that's the same stuff that your helmet is made of. Uh, it's that foam inside
1: your helmet. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. so question for you, does that mean all of your wheels have EPS within, within the car? No,
1: no, the EPS is is removed. It's removed with steam and a solvent so we can take it out. There's a hole on the opposite end of the, uh, of the valve hole. Yeah. And so it's removed out of that hole. And then we cover it with the sticker that shows you what orientation to, to lace the wheel in. Wow. So if you remove that sticker, you'll see the porthole where the EPS comes out.
0: Hashtag science kids. <laughs> that's groovy. Um, yeah. Groovy, groovy. <laughs> then I just dated myself right after I, I hashtagged. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty interesting. So now with all the talk of hookless, uh, you know, there was, you guys made an effort, uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna wait into these weeds, Bobby. Are you ready? Um, <laughs> you guys made an effort to sort of um, show the difference between uh, rims uh, from various manufacturers when it comes mm-hmm. to to heat uh, dissipation uh because that's one of your selling points is you guys you guys make claims that you know your heat dissipation um, is better am I, mm-hmm. am I, am I characterizing that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we, the way, the best way to phrase it is that it's not possible to delaminate the rip. Okay. You know, unlimited rider weight, one break down Mont two. Mm-hmm. No problem. I can get, you know, we just want to make I sure want. it's safe. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the biggest benefit. <laughs> yeah. All right. You can get super fat.
0: Excuse me. I'm going to go crack open a couple <laughs> beers. <laughs>
1: um,
0: tell me about if you guys, if for for my listeners, you guys may not have seen this, but a while back, uh, Alto put out a video on, on YouTube uh, showing uh, some some testing that they did with various wheels from various manufacturers, which, um, if you are at all familiar with how the bike industry operates, that's going to ruffle some feathers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell me what the test was about, and uh, tell me what you were trying to show, and tell me what the response to the video was.
1: Yeah, we, we developed this resin. We used three additives, um, two of them being graphene and copper, to help dissipate heat faster, you know, the glass temperature of the resin being fairly similar to our competitors, but just being able to remove the heat faster. And when we prototyped it and tested it, um, we were learning various things. We were learning we needed to update our rim tape design to make heat resistant tape that didn't fail. We realized the size of the tube mattered. We, All these variables that we had to control to make sure we were just testing the rim. And then our first prototype, I believe it ran for like 21 minutes before it started to bubble. And we started sharing it with shops uh, this was maybe four months prior to our launch. And they were like, that's cool. Like, who cares? What does it mean? Does, you know, the zip probably goes for an hour. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I mean, we tested it based off of what we see as being a, a worst case scenario situation and showing the durability. But without any context, it was irrelevant. So we got the idea to bring in one rim from every manufacturer that we could possibly get our hands on Without you know blowing the budget completely <laughs> for the project, and because carbon rims are cheap, I hear. Yeah. So cheap, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, testing them, you know, internally just out of curiosity. And as we started to to look at the protocol, I was like, man, I and I looking on the internet, seeing how other manufacturers were t- were showing their testing. It was typically a marketing manager standing in front of the machine that tests it. And just saying, this is how we test the rim. And then the video would end. And we're like, that doesn't tell us anything. There's no data. There's there's nothing. So every shop that has a pile of delaminated rims is just giving his best guess based on his own personal experience, which is typically a very small sample size, to what is safe and what is right for that customer. And so we're like, man, I'm sure that if we're this interested, that our retailers would be just as interested and so we knew it would turn heads and what i found interesting is that you know we developed the tests for our rim to make sure it was safe that we brought in everybody else's rim and we didn't know what would happen we had one shot because we had one rim of every brand and so when we started telling you guys the media that we were going to do it we had made the we had made the promise i guess is the best way to put it to publish it regardless of how we did and you know i i mentioned it to quite a few different outlets that even if we got fifth or last or wherever we stacked up, that this was important data for the industry to have. And um, so to be perfectly honest, we didn't know what was going to happen and we were super disappointed that the disparity between brands was so massive because we tested our rim like fourth, I want to say, and then the zip rim, the ND rim, some of the very reputable brands we hadn't tested yet. And I was like, it's okay. Like we may be 37 minutes beyond some of these other brands we've already done, but certainly, you know, these, these other guys will get into phase two. And when they didn't, and it was just a couple minutes longer than the other guys, I was like, this is going to be a problem like this. It was, it was hard to look at because it looked manipulated in some way Mm -hmm. because the results were what they were. Um, so we published it, you know, for what it was. We published the raw data and uh, let the cards fall where they may. Um, and we just did our best to answer all the technical questions from our competitors and from our customers about what was going on on the test. And um, I thought it, I thought it was great because the more technical the questions were, the more responses we got from our competitors. The more data we could give out. And the best example was that. I think Mavic did a podcast, um, and they said that our glass temperature was just really high. and that's how we accomplished what we accomplished, mm-hmm. and that the, the the nature of a high TG resin is that it's very brittle mm-hmm. and that it will crack. And I bet the alto rims crack in impact. And so we did what we wanted them to do, which was to to prove it. Mm-hmm. You know we wanted to see their testing and see their own internal heat transfer testing to prove that their rims, you know, were the quality that they claim. And so instead of just saying, nah, we took the rim from the heat transfer test, we put it on our UCI impact jig, and we ran it to failure. And we showed that the rim is it runs to 220 joules of impact until failure, and that UCI certification is 40 joules. Mm-hmm. And so we, anytime anybody wanted to rebuke the results with some other area of weakness, we just wanted to create a test to show that that wasn't the case, sure. and I think that's what we want out of the industry as a whole: is less claims mm-hmm. and more testing and more data. Right. Um, that's just the nerd side of me, I suppose. Right. But that's that's well, what that's, I like to and see. And that's consistent. Yeah, that's consistent <laughs>
0: with that's consistent with every <laughs> comment I get on Facebook or Twitter is, you know, less marketing speak and more actual data. Um, sure. Which is why you know which is why this podcast exists. This is you know why we do the testing we do.
1: But I, Man, I want... we—I saw an article come out. I can't remember the the media platform, but an article came out about another brand's rim, and it said that they were stable to eight hundred degrees Celsius. Hmm. The resin, and I was like, "That is just a fake number. You might as well have said a bajillion."
0: Well, I ride—I ride, I ride <laughs> eight hundred degrees Celsius all the time. I don't know about you.
1: It's like yeah. That's... I just every single rim we got in yeah. failed at three hundred Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and I see all these numbers thrown around. I'm like, "This." It's so far off the mark that sure. it's just offensive
0: well, and it also it doesn't
1: really tell people much, you know it, it right
0: ultimately, what we're all trying to do is is get the best performance out of the the investment that we're making because you know absolutely of rims are expensive, but i want I want yeah. to be clear for those of you listening that this test that we're talking about and the reason I brought it up is because it was controversial, um, yes, but it was not uh, a hookless rim it was uh, it was a rim brake rim correct yeah yeah, so yes, yeah. So this is sort of a little tangential to what we're talking about, but I think it's important because what what it does show is that, you know, regardless of what you think of, of the uh, approach to this test, there was a good faith effort to um, to do that testing and to find out what the failure rates were in, among uh, a lot of different brands, which I think a lot of brands are unwilling to do um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you do face uh, scrutiny from other brands. And, and quite frankly, you could face litigation. I mean, you could face, sure. I mean, you know, people, people need to protect the things that are making them money. And so they'll enforce, sure. you know, they'll enforce those things. But I think this was a gutsy move, you know, and I didn't, when this landed on my desk, I didn't publish it. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and I, 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 emailed Bobby and I said, Oh man, I have questions. Like, <laughs> um, and because Absolutely. I, and frankly it was because i wanted to understand what i was looking at before before i pa- you know i passed it on to my audience um mm-hmm. and and that's one of the reasons i'm talking to you now um you know it, we, whenever we talk about carbon i'm always a little hesitant to to republish people's claims about you know um rigidity stiffness uh you know failure rates all that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. um you know we we don't have that that comparison uh, testing from a, from an independent source, uh, right? You know, we are always reliant on on uh, the brands uh, messaging, unless you know someone like VeloNews takes a bunch of you know products to the lab, an independent lab, and does that testing independently, right? Which we love to do, but it is super expensive, so we can't do it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was and speaking
1: of testing. I have a request for you, uh-oh. not to get off track.
0: Oh yes, go ahead.
1: But but in terms of Variable control and testing that you know really means something Mm -hmm. to me. Something I'd love to do. Every frame that I've ever put in the wind tunnel has a different level of turbulence coming Mm -hmm. off of the different tubes. Mm -hmm. So off the down tube, for example, it might be 15% turbulence um, on a Cannondale and 40% on a Trek. Mm -hmm. And it's not better or worse. It's just different based on the different geometries and tube shapes. Right. Um, some rim profiles are fantastic in turbulent flow and some are fantastic in smooth flow. Mm -hmm. And so I can't handle seeing any more wind tunnel testing of just an individual wheel with laminar flow running over it, not on a frame. Right. And then telling people that it's faster Mm -hmm. for them, no matter what. Right. My, I think my head's going to explode. Well,
0: you know, it's (laughs) it's funny that you should mention that because, uh, Uh Cervelo just released their S5. I went to Spain and I wrote it. And okay. one, one of the things that they said was exactly what what you're talking about. They said, you know, really, yeah. I mean, they said, you know, fine. Somebody else's bike frame might be faster than ours in a wind tunnel, but as soon as you put a rider on it, uh, right. everything changes. The parameters change, and so
1: we it, tested. You have to rider. control the variables. So, like, the reason we use the same brake pad yeah. in our test was to control that variable to ensure that we were comparing just the carbon fiber and just the resins. Right. Because if it's a different pad, who knows what what rim is better right. in that scenario. So I, I need you guys to buy like 20 frames. Well, you're, you're <laughs> and already and, out of luck, man. <laughs> stop. We can stop like, that right there. And like 20 sets of wheels <laughs> yeah. and go to a wind tunnel yeah. and run and control the frame variable. Mm-hmm. So for a Trek speed concept, right. You'll run through 10 10 different sets of wheels and you can rank for this frame. Yeah. You know, these, these wheels are the best. Right. And then those same wheels on a specialized right. and, Create a database of specific wheels on specific frames. Mm-hmm. That's the I really, really want to do it because mm-hmm. it would be incredibly useful. Right. Um, our sample size right now with the frames we've tested is just so small, sure, and we've sure. only tested a handful of wheels. Well, to my to my um,
0: listeners, I will say, you know, please address your bags of cash to Dan Cavalary. <laughs> Paravela or if news. we
1: accept bike donations yeah um yeah. all sorts of different right stuff. no yeah. i
0: i totally agree i think that's that's a fantastic way to approach it and it is just so phenomenally expensive to do that so yes that's that's yes. our limiting factor i would love to do with that testing all oh time.
1: i i hear you yeah. we're limited by funds yeah yeah often yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. um and i think you know one of the things that that really strikes me about the conversation we're having here when i when we're supposed to be talking about hookless rims is that this whole <laughs> this whole discussion is about heat transfer. And mm-hmm. hookless rims on a disc brake wheel eliminates this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we get back to you know disc wheels and and the hookless rim, if you think about what problems uh, a disc brake wheel uh, uh, eliminates, uh, mm-hmm. just, just by nature of being a disc brake wheel, that really changes the conversation about disc versus rim brakes. And, you know, just by eliminating uh, the, the rim brake, you've created a whole new wheel, a hookless rim system that is uh, mm-hmm. more reliable, that is lighter, that is simpler to produce, uh, mm-hmm. thereby making it, ostensibly should be making it less expensive. Um, just by moving the brake, you've mm-hmm. you've created a whole different wheel system and a wheel environment that, that allows more reliability that allows safer wheels. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get the comments, you know, oh, disc <laughs> brakes are heavier. You're opening and, up
1: rim versus disc. Yeah. Now, which yeah. is a tough place to oh, go. <laughs> man, I, I
0: live there, man. I live there. And, uh, And, you know, the comments are always the same, like, oh, it's just the industry trying to force this. No, man, it's not. There's actual science to back this up. I will be the first to admit (laughs) that there have been things in the bike industry that have been made just for the sake of selling new bikes. This brakes, guys, it's not one of them. It's not one of them. Right. There are real benefits to this. There are real advantages. And I understand it's frustrating Mm -hmm. to have to buy a new bike and new, you know, everything and bleeding brakes, blah, blah, blah. There are actual tangible benefits to this and hookless rims are cert- mm-hmm. certainly one of them um yeah so that's that's one of the other reasons i wanted to bring up this test that's one of the reasons i wanted to talk a little bit about this heat transfer situation um and and really bring this back to you know the difference between disc and rim brake uh rims and and the idea that a hookless room can exist simply because you're not dealing with that heat transfer situation right is there anything right. else, Bobby, before we before we wrap this up that we're forgetting to talk about with hookless rims? Is there any benefits, any drawbacks, anything people need to um, know?
1: The only thing that I'll say is that to give my two cents on the rim brake versus disc brake argument without having, comment, yeah. without having to comment. Without having to type it, uh-huh. I can just say it. Yeah. Because as curmudgeon as I am, yeah. I, love, I love going to disc brake. But as a former professional racer, I would have never done it. And the reason is because of the neutral wheel support, the the wheel changes and brake rub. And even though the majority of the listeners aren't going through that that issue, it still comes down to swapping wheels out, mm-hmm. different rotor widths and different rotor spacing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's there's an issue with brake rub. And so we toyed around with the idea of creating a, a hydraulic system and Making this one of the problems that we were going to solve, but I really don't want to compete with Shimano. I think that's a pretty bad idea. Sure. So, I'm if, if Shimano is listening, <laughs> or SRAM, or Campy, I beg somebody to create some sort of hydraulic overflow piston or quick release mechanism, so that you can widen the space between the pad and the rotor, and have a longer pad travel with less lever throw and a quick release mechanism to open it up mm-hmm. in you know in case of brake rub. Or adjust it laterally so that you can move it. Because if I was racing and I ended up with a team wheel or a neutral wheel that was rubbing the brakes, I'd be petrified to flat. Mm -hmm. And so these World Tour riders, they're not scared. They're not scared of disc brakes. And it's nothing to do with danger. There's an infinite number of dangerous things going on in those races. But they just are pissed off when their brakes are rubbing. And they don't want to deal with it. And so, as soon as somebody solves that, mm-hmm. rim brake will die, completely die. All right, you because heard, that's you heard the heard it here first. You that's heard. the only argument that's left. All right, and so I ride rim brake now because our rims are the most reliable in the world, and I can move the caliper with my hands and swap wheels. Man, you, really,
0: that, you really are a curmudgeon. Good for you. So that
1: yeah. that, that ease of adjustability is yeah. huge for me. Yeah. I just love it
0: well um, let's let's go so. listeners I want to hear from you on this is is Bobby on <laughs> something or is he just a, a crazy mad scientist curmudgeon? Uh, yeah I'm not sure anymore yeah I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we're having we're having crises of faith here on the Velo news podcast <laughs> Bobby thanks very much for your time I appreciate you coming to talk about some uh, helpless rims and all the other uh, things that come along with it. And, uh, of course. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Anytime. And uh, Vela News listeners, if you have questions for me or for Bobby about this topic, uh, or if you have questions or comments about any other tech topic, please do not hesitate to comment on Facebook uh, or tweet at me at Brown Dan. And thank you once again for listening to the Vela News Tech Podcast.